Was that fun or what? Yeah, you're going to see uh, you're going to see more of the kids during Advent, uh, and, and you're going what Advent? You're talking about Advent? Well, yes, I am actually. Uh, this is our last Sunday in Sermon on the Mount, and then next Sunday, beginning of Thanksgiving week, we have our uh, missionary outreach festival, which is a really fun time. And then after that, we start Advent. So the kids will be back for Advent all through the Advent season. We try to bring the kids into it. So on the back is a bunch of um, announcements and about what's coming up this holiday season, Christmas season. So you should kind of read it, pay attention to it. The Outreach Ministries Festival next Sunday, one service at 930. Not two services, one service, 930. If you come at 830, what's going to happen? You get put to work. That's exactly right. If you come at 10, what happens? You get laughed at. (laughs) So it's also a potluck. Two or three times a year, we try to get the whole church together. This is when we celebrate what God has done as far as our ability to reach out. A lot of good stuff next Sunday. And then we're going to have a potluck. So bring something to share. Just make sure it's good. Okay? We like good food here. (laughs) Had a couple of you laugh. Yeah. So it is a potluck next week. Uh, today, right after the class is in, or uh, after church is in choir's class. For those of you that are interested to know more about the church, uh, we have lunch across the way and we sit down and we just talk to you about why are we organized the way we are and um, why do we do the things we do? What do we believe? That sort of thing. So we'd like to invite you to that. If you are interested in joining the church, this is the first, but it's not a requirement to join. It's just a time for you to come and learn about the church. So I'd love to invite you to, to join me right after church. The uh, It's Operation Christmas Child Time. That's information is in here. People have already started filling boxes. How many of you have done this before? Fill the box. For the rest of you that haven't, oh, I can't say shame on you because we're in church. No, I'm just kidding. You should, you should fill these up. This is a great ministry that impacts p- kids all around the world. And our goal is to fill the stage up so you can't see us up here. That's the goal. So grab one of these. They're out there. There's information on there. And there's plenty of other stuff that you can see on here that um, is related to our church. Okay. If you are a vet, you served in uh, mil- one of the militaries, uh, stand up. Let me see how many we have in this service. There's one, two, stay standing. (laughs) If you have a family member uh, who is a a vet, stand up. There's more of you. Okay, stay standing. Today is Veterans Day where we honor our vets. No, no, stay standing. I'm going to pray for you. I would like to uh, take just a moment and pray for you. And we'd like to say thank you. Some of you served directly and some of you paid a price by knowing someone else who served. And we're very grateful. Uh, we, I think we all agree that we long for the day when there's no longer a need for the military or hostilities, that sort of thing. But until that happens, we are very grateful for you. So let me pray for you. Father, I pray for these people. Um, Just, we owe them so much, Lord, that they're willing to pay some price for those of us that enjoy the freedoms in our country. Thank you that you've even given us this country, Lord. As I travel around the world, I always look forward to coming home. I always look forward to being back here. So great. Father, I pray that you would bless these vets and the families today. uh, And just let today be a special day. 
Uh, thank you for their service to our country. In your son's name, amen. Thank you once again for serving. Okay, we're in um, Matthew 6. This is the last Sunday. We're going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And we're actually going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer today. I believe the Lord's Prayer is kind of the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. It's only halfway through. But uh, we're going to stop today. And we're going to shift gears for the Advent season. And begin to focus on uh, the Christmas time and what that's all about. So we're going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer, and every one of you, I believe, is familiar with the Lord's Prayer. It's something you've heard, you've said together many times probably throughout your life. It's a, it's a really important part of church history. Remember that um, when we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, we labeled it the Great Reversal because Jesus is reversing what is accepted in culture. The very values that culture looks down on are typically the values that um, the Lord upholds as honorable. And so it's a surprise. Let's start with this when it comes to prayer. How did you learn about prayer? How did you learn? Perhaps you had a mother or a grandmother that taught you to pray or a father that led prayer at the dinner table or... Your various traditions have various ways of praying publicly. How did you learn to pray? How you learn to pray um, shapes the way you think about prayer. It does. Today's a little bit more serious because we're going to get into the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not a ritual. Um, it's something far deeper than that. The Lord's Prayer is the, it's a conversation between two members of the Trinity, the Son praying to the Father and helping us to understand what that looks like. It's a very intimate moment in the life of Jesus. It's much like John 17 when he's praying um, his last night. The, uh, ooh, it's a good prayer. So when he asked the Lord if there's any other way, any other way, but he prays for us. He prays for us right here in our church, those who will believe in his name. And so when you step into the prayers of Jesus, you're not stepping into a ritual. You're stepping into a conversation. You're stepping into a model, uh, an example of what it means. How did your children, how did you learn to converse in society, in families, in groups, and friends. How did you learn that? We now know a lot today that the health of your family says a lot about how you learn to converse. And so you grew up, and if, you're, and if you know how to have the conversation with people, it's most likely because you came from a very healthy family. You know how to engage. We see this with the children up here. One of the things that we're doing with our children is we're giving them a sense of identity. Okay, they don't have to know the theology behind the story of Jonah, but the moment they learn the story of Jonah, they're different than the other kids. That's identity. They've learned something. And so if you were to go into any of our Sunday school classrooms, and I would encourage you to do that sometime, or come to VBS, you'll see us engaging with the children and teaching them how to have conversation and how to talk, how to use words about Christianity. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He's showing us what's going on, and how to pray. 
It was very common for the, the rabbis to teach their disciples how to pray. And you'd think, well, isn't prayer kind of normal? For many of you that grew up in a Christian home, prayer was kind of normal, at least the way you learned it. It feels a little odd when you move outside of that. One of the great things about a community church is that you're all coming from different traditions. So when I have conversations with those of you that were raised in a Catholic tradition, it feels a little odd to you the way we pray. For those of you that were raised in a Lutheran tradition or a Methodist tradition or whatever tradition, when I have conversations, that's one of the things that comes up is how it feels in this context. So I would encourage you as we work our way through this, just to have an open mind. Rituals are good, but if we're not careful, rituals also push us away. And so when we step into this, this is perhaps the best known prayer of Christianity When we step into it, don't turn the light switch off. Stay engaged with me all the way through because we're going to learn a lot about the Lord and His relationship to God, His Father, and we're going to learn a lot about us in the middle of it. Okay, so remember, the whole setup for the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is teaching about the kingdom and announcing the kingdom. And so he's introducing ideas that are different and unique. Well, it makes sense that the prayer, the Lord's prayer would be different and unique from what was going on at that time. And it is. So the very first thing he does is he begins to introduce hypocrites. So I asked you how you learned to pray and where you came from in your tradition. Well, this is where these people came from in their tradition. So here's what he says in Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites. I love that. That's us, by the way. We don't necessarily do what they're doing, but we're all hypocrites. Hypocrites. What does he mean by that? They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, The Jewish people had prescribed prayer times throughout the day. Uh, We know that from Daniel and uh, several other places in the Bible. And so if you have a street corner at the right time to pray, I think his, his, uh, what he's pointing to here is that was on purpose. That was contrived. Oh, it's one minute. I better get to the street corner. So I just happen to be at the right corner where everybody's passing so I can stop and pray and everybody can see it. These are the types of people that love their prayers put out there. Their prayers become sermons, if you will. You know, uh, we begin to use our prayers to teach people rather than to have a conversation with God. And uh, I think we all know people like that. We've probably heard people like that. I had a seminary professor tell me, the longer your prayer, the shallower your relationship with God. <laughs> I loved it. It was great. And he said, he'll sit there and, and, and people will start praying. And they'll pray on and on and on and on in a prayer. And when I go to, uh, well, one of the countries I go to, I won't tell you which one. One of the countries I go to, the, the husband of the family I stay with, you got 10 seconds to pray for dinner. On second number 11, he's dishing out the food. You can keep praying if you want. He's eating. And so <laughs> these are people that, that they make it a show. They make it a show. It's hard to know. Uh, I know for many of you, it's hard to know how to, to step into a conversation with the Lord in a way that is, is simple 
authentic, that's a good word. It, it's a conversation with someone. It's not a, it's not a, recis, a recitation of things. It's, it's an actual conversation. Um, and that's hard to do. One of my favorite memories I've shared with some of you, um, when we were in Germany working with the military, we led a guy to the Lord. And um, on a Friday night, he was an infantryman, and a um, uh, big guy, really big guy. And so he, his faith became real, and he wanted to profess Jesus, which he did. On Monday, so this is on Friday, and on Monday, he comes into my office dragging a guy bigger than him in, and he says, he said, tell, tell him about what you told me on Friday. I said, you tell him. And he said, well, I don't know how to say it. And I said, just tell him what happened. And he turns around, I'll remove all the expletives, because <laughs> we're in church. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, he looked at this guy, he goes, my life's all messed up, and uh, I came here Friday night, and I became a Christian. And the big guy says, well, I'd like to become a Christian. So he looks at me, and he goes, tell him how to become a Christian. I said, you tell him how to become a Christian. And he goes, well, I, uh, I prayed this prayer and believed in Jesus. And he says, well, I'd like to do that. So he looks at me, and he says, help him pray. And I said, you help him pray. I don't know how to pray. And I said, you just did it Friday night. So it's, it's, it's one of the all-time great memories. When I shared it in the first service, Nancy actually had tears because she remembers it. So these two guys, he grabs them by the collar, and they get down on their knees right in my office. And he said, close your eyes. <laughs> Put your hands together. <laughs> say what I say. My, my, uh, dear, dear God, my life is messed up. My life is all messed up. With better words than that. And uh, I want to be a Christian because I know you helped me. Or something like that. And the guy repeated. And he says, amen, amen. He says, now you're a Christian. Now, I've been through a lot of seminary classes. I don't think that experience is in any, any one of my textbooks on what it means to turn to Christ, lead somebody to the Lord, or teach them how to pray. Okay? But I tell you what. It was authentic. Nancy and I had the privilege of watching these guys grow over the next few years. And we're still friends on Facebook with them. Still walking with the Lord. And it was, it was really that simple. And because what made, it, what made it priceless was it was authentic. He didn't know how to pray. And so therefore, there wasn't a script. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is a relationship. Can you imagine having a relationship with someone and never talking? Can't think of that, can we? That's what prayer is. Yes, prayer has certain times where we stop and pray, but prayer is something far deeper than that. It's something that is ongoing. It's something that you do when you drive, when you eat, when you walk, when you're with a friend. It's something that it should be a, a normal part of our lives. So he's giving them a model here of what that looks like because, because the models they had didn't work. The first one is a hypocrite standing up in the synagogue and, and trying to impress people. That's false religion. That's the type of religion that chases people away from Christianity. Okay, look at the second example. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. They do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. So if the first ones are hypocrites. The second one, don't pray like Gentiles. Now, be careful here. He's not speaking about against lengthy prayers because He Himself prayed all night. The Gentiles tended to babble with, in one of two ways. 
They had words in their mantras, and you'll still hear this, actually, if you go to different countries. And they'll say the same word over and over and over again. It's senseless. It's not, there's no authenticity. Imagine if I have a conversation with you, and I only say two words, and I say them over and over and over and over again. And you're going, well, it's not really a conversation. So this is the other extreme. You have one person that's really showing off, and you have another person that's just wasting a lot of energy and time. Another thing that they did was they would say the names of as many gods as they could remember because they didn't. They want to make sure they captured the gods, the right ones. Uh, one of my students in India said to me one time, we were talking about prayer, and he says, you poor American. <laughs> I love it when my students in Asian countries do that. He said, you have no idea what it's like to serve 300 million gods. Hinduism. You have no idea at any given moment which ones are angry with you and which ones aren't. Think about how wonderful it is that we serve one true living God who cares about us. Is that good news? One God who knows all there is to know about us and loves us anyway. One God who loves to engage us. He just loves it. I remember the time when I, with my children, as they were growing through the teenage and young adult years and doing all the things that horrified me as a parent, I remember sitting down and just reflecting on it and realizing three things that have stuck with me all these years, and I've told several of you parents this, it's true about every human on the planet. God loves your children more than you do. It's hard to remember that. Number two, that he has had, uh, he's been involved in their lives in far more intimate ways than you ever will be. And number three, he has far more experience with their stupidity. I mean, their learning life. <laughs> I'm guilty of it, by the way as well he has far more experience with whatever sin they're struggling with than you have you can relax and that's true of every human i just love the fact that god is pursuing every human and wants to engage them here these are not idle words these are these are a, a, a conversation if you will between jesus and his father to help us understand what prayer really is all about. Don't be like those people that are show-offs and don't be like those people who are shallow. That's not what prayer is about at all. He's talking about the kind of prayer that is authentic and has content to it. It's an actual conversation. Have you been in conversations with people where you just feel like they're wasting your time? You know what I'm talking about. And so he's saying, no, make this an authentic kind of prayer. But he reassures them, your father knows what you need before you even ask them. Um, he's reassuring them that they have nothing to worry about. Look in Isaiah 65, verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. This is in a passage referring to the new heavens and the new earth. What's coming? You see, for us, the future is already in the present. Not completely, but we are already enjoying it today. Why does God want you to pray? It's not for his benefit. It's for your benefit. The future is already involved in our lives right now. It's amazing, isn't it? Peter goes one step further in 1 Peter 5. 
We have a God who hears and cares for us. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is the God that we serve. We don't have to worry about competing gods, angry gods, hostile gods. We don't have to worry about that. We serve a God, the one true living God, who actually cares. That is the heart of the gospel. That's what the world needs to hear. Right there. When I'm out and about in the county talking to young people, it's amazing to me how many of our young people that come through the county, how many of them have a church background? A religious background of some kind. It's astounding to me. The majority of them. Very rarely do I meet somebody that says, huh? Church? Never been there. No. And they've rejected it. And they've walked away. And moved in a different direction. But as as I listen to the stories, I've asked this question many times. Because it appears to me what they're doing is they're, they're not rejecting. They're rejecting a form of religiosity. What they experienced in church. And when I hear their stories, I'd be upset too when I hear the things I've heard. And I've asked several of them, are you trying to throw out your spirituality and your faith along with the religious experience that you had? That's what drives people away from the church. The best gift we can give these people in our county is a healthy church. Authentic. And when I say healthy and authentic, here's what I mean by that. What we say we believe and the way we live our lives are the same. When they're not, we hurt each other. And we push people away. That's the fundamental definition of hypocrisy in the Bible. And the more we work to bring these things together, the more attractive we are to people. Because we actually care about them. We love them. That's the warning Jesus did. All right. So then he introduces the prayer. Matthew 5, uh, 6, verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay. Now remember, he right off the bat, this serves as a model. The version in Luke is slightly different. So we learn really quickly, I think, that Jesus probably shared this model more than once. He's probably teaching people, here's how you pray. So Matthew recorded a particular example of it, which is instructive for us. So it's not simply a ritual that we read. And, you know, when you start reading it, it's so familiar to you that you tune it out. That's not it at all. It's meant to be much deeper than that. This is about, it's going to give us a sense of what our two priorities are or should be. And it's a statement of how we should live our lives. So the very first thing he talks about is an intimate God. He begins with what? What's the opening words to the prayer? Our Father. Right? He didn't say my Father. He said our Father. All the pronouns and verbs throughout here are all plural. And so the early church immediately recognized that this is one of those times, a model for us to come together as a church and lift up to the Lord, recognizing who He is and requesting things from Him together. This becomes a picture to the world of what our relationship together as a church is like as we approach God, the Trinity. This is a picture of that. So what starts with the individual, we're going to see we need daily food and all that, but it finds its consummation in community. Our Father. The use of Father highlights this relational intimacy that we should, we should be practicing. It's not a rote prayer. It should be a prayer from the heart. Because we share 
the same Father. We share the same God. That's what happens. So then he gets three petitions, three God-oriented petitions or requests, if you will. The first one is, hallowed be your name. Right up there. Another way to say that is, may your name be kept sacred. May your name be holy. That's another way of saying it. Those, all those words are, are in, the, uh, in that same group. You see, in the ancient world, names reflected the very character of the person who has a name. And so you could be given a different name as you aged. I don't think in the Old Testament when uh, Naboth's mother named him Naboth, that she probably named him at birth, you fool. That's what that means. That name gets probably added later on because his character developed along foolish lines. And so the name in the ancient world was very important because it reveals our character. And so what, right off the bat, we learned that God's character is holy. That's what that means. Since holiness is at the very heart of his character, that should be a reflection of us as well. This prayer is a statement about how we should live life. We should be holy, as Peter says, be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uses both those words. His holiness should be our goal. And we talked about that a few weeks ago when we talked about the law of Moses. It reflected the holiness of God. It reflects the very character of God. If you don't, if you don't do something like this, I would encourage you to do it. It's very easy. I get up every morning, not every morning, but most mornings over the last 40 years and have said the same prayer every morning when I wake up. Um, Thanks for another day of life. Help me to bring honor to your name today. It's that fast and it calibrates my day. Help me to bring honor to your name. That should be a desire of us. If we serve a father whose name is holy, who is holy by his very character, we should want to be like that. You see what I mean when I say this prayer is more than a ritual? It's an actual expression of what we are to be living, how we are to be living our lives. Then he gets to the second petition, may your kingdom come. This reflects a longing for the kingdom that is coming. We have the advantage as believers, we already taste it. We already experience the future in today's world in the present, and the world does not. Is it here in its fullness? Not exactly, no. But all of his teaching here, we learn from the Sermon on the Mount that we don't really understand things like justice and holiness very well. Because we've been so shaped by the world's patterns, we don't really grasp it too easily. But what we learn here in the Sermon on the Mount is that very thing, but we're beginning to redefine what that means. And so we should want the kingdom here with us right now. He goes, one, uh, the third petition, may, your, may it be done or may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a glimpse of what kingdom perspective looks like. Is that what is happening in God's domain is what we desire. We want that here on the earth right now. That's why we should pray for it. But it's not only God bring it, we have to be that. What do we find in heaven? We find holiness. We find peace. We find love. We find contentment. We find worship. We find dependence, right? That's what we find. Isn't that what we desire today? I look forward to the day when we don't have to have vets stand up. Isn't that what we want? So it makes sense that we would pray, God, God, whatever is happening in heaven, bring it to us today. 
But that's not only an answer that he'll deliver it. It's an answer that we become it. We become people who are holy. We become people who live in peace. We should be peacemakers. The Beatitudes. We are people that express love, express contentment. Do you see how this is not just simply a ritualistic prayer? This prayer is a very statement of our, our character as a church. What we are. So then he moves to three different petitions. And this time the petitions are related to us. Starting in verse 11. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So the very first prayer petition related to us, request, is give us today our daily bread. What he's saying here is turn to rely on the Lord every day. How hard is it for you to rely on the Lord rather than your savings account? I confess. It's hard. I like having a savings account. But you know what? The average day laborer in the first century got paid for one day's work. When I'm in third world countries teaching, it's astounding to me that they, they just have enough for today. So many of them live today. Don't worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. That's actually a biblical principle. I was talking to one of my students in India a number of years ago. He just graduated and he's getting ready to plant a church in the state of Orissa, which is a hostile state to Christianity. And he showed me on the map, laid the map out. And I said, well, why'd you pick that one village? And he goes, well, he drew a circle. He said, as best I can tell, it's 200 kilometers to the nearest Christian. So I want to go there and tell them about Christ. And I said, oh, thinking like a good American, how are you going to fund that? He goes, Oh, dear. Oh, sir. Do I have to worry about that? I thought that that was God's responsibility. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, 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 I, no, no, no. You're exactly right. That's God's responsibility. I'm just kind of curious what you're thinking. As an American, what am I thinking? How am I going to fund it? And he's not even, it's not even on his radar screen. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Give us today our daily bread. Teach us what dependence looks like every day. Don't fall into the trap of, of relying on your own confidence, your own skill set, your own savings account, your own position, your own wealth. It's, you only have that because the Lord has blessed you. It really is very difficult to learn. I'm going to trust the Lord for today and today only. Taking it one day at a time. Okay, the second petition. Forgive us our debts. This is most likely metaphorical for sins. Luke actually translated it as sins. This is a word in economic terms, but it had gained a lot of uh, metaphorical use by this time in world history to refer to people who sinned. And what does it look like to forgive? This is actually raising the question of forgiveness because this is at the heart of redemption. Um, let me remind you what redemption is. Redemption is very, it's a very simple concept. You get yourself in a jam. You can't get yourself out of it. Somebody else comes along and gets you out of it. Several parables are related to this whole premise. But the essence behind it is the forgiveness of debt. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is not an event. I forgive you. That's, that's fake. I'm not God. I don't have the ability to forget what you've done to me. Forgiveness actually is the opposite. <clears throat> I'm going to honor you 
by remembering the way you hurt me and choosing not to hold it against you. That is a lifetime endeavor. And that's what he's asking. As we have forgiven our debtors, those who sin against us. And you know what? Forgiveness is very, very difficult. We do not forgive because somebody repents. That's not why we forgive. Forgiveness should occur long before repentance. Repentance in the part of another person is up to the Lord. We forgive because it frees us. That's why. Ephesians 5, forgive one another because Christ Jesus has already forgiven you. So how many of you know a person that, that's not a very forgiving person? Anybody here? What are they like? A person that just doesn't forgive, what are they like? You tell me. What's that? Bitter? What else? Judgmental? Easily offended? Right? Is that the type of person you want to be? See, here's what happens. When you start forgiving people, not because they're worthy, but because they have dignity. Not because they've apologized, but because they have dignity. They're made in the image of God. When you start forgiving people, here is the truth about spiritual, the spiritual life. There comes a point in time when you've done it enough and you know it is practically impossible to do, at least well, that your gaze moves to heaven and you say, and that's what it was like for you to forgive me. Then you begin to understand the forgiveness of the Lord in entirely new light. Number three, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let me just say something. Let me say this. According to James 1.13, God does not tempt anyone. The word for tempt and test is the same word in Greek. Your translators are helping you out. Every time it's a temptation to sin, they translate it tempt. Every time it's a test from God, they translate it test. Okay? God tested Abraham. God does test. God does not tempt you to evil. So what that says is that in every event that comes into your life, there is God and there is Satan. Both are at work. God is there to prove that your faith is real to him. No, to you. He's doing it for your benefit. Satan is there to get you to fail. So when Satan does it, he's going all about temptation. Man, he's throwing those images or whatever he can get at you. God is just simply says, I have confidence because you have my spirit. Have you considered my servant Job? Same word. So for every one of these challenges you face, God and Satan are coming at you from two different sides. And God already knows he's going to win. Oh, you may fail in sin, but he's still going to get the glory because he forgives. He already knows that. So he's asking God, don't lead us into that temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Okay, let me say a word about the traditional ending to this, the doxology. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. In your Bibles at all, you'll know that that's not in any of the uh, uh, <clears throat> prayers of the New Testament. As best we can tell, that was added at later. It occurs in later manuscripts. It was added by leaders of the church, but it's okay because it's a statement, a restatement of First Chronicles 29. 
Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. So what the church leaders did, probably, is they took an earlier inspired text and attached it to a later inspired text. It's still inspired. And it makes it a wonderful prayer. So most of the time when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray with the added doxology, the blessing at the end, out of First Chronicles. Okay, what does all this mean? Let me give you some real simple principles from this prayer. Remember, authenticity is the overarching idea behind it. Number one, do not use prayer to get attention. Just don't do it. Okay? It's okay to be nervous when you pray, if you're asked to pray up front. Don't use it to give a sermon or teach. Just be authentic. Number two, the power of prayer is based on quality, not quantity. God does not have a short attention span. He already knows the things you're going to ask before you even ask. He doesn't need us to gang up on him. Somehow, if I pray, it's more powerful if 12 of us pray. That's not it. What's more powerful is that we as a group are praying. That's what's more powerful, is that it's working in our lives. It's not convincing God. Number three, the heart of prayer is worship. Humble attitude. Authentic. Number four, corporate prayer is just as important as personal prayer. Pray. Pray throughout the day. When somebody comes to mind, just stop and say, God, I, I pray for them. Whatever's going on in their life. And public prayer, corporate prayer, is designed to bring us together in unity. Number five, be concerned with the things of God before our own needs. Be concerned with the priorities of God. Number six, we are to be dependent on God in totality. Physically and spiritually. Forgiveness, daily needs. Learn to trust God on a daily basis. Not for what you've accomplished, but for who God is. And finally, God's community is all about forgiveness and reconciliation. The very very last thing he says, put that last verse up there. He's looking for it. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I can't state it, overstate it, how important it is that our church is healthy. That we practice love and forgiveness. All the things that we, that we know occur in heaven that we desire to experience on the earth. Because this is what will draw people that don't know Jesus, but need to. Can't overstate how important this is. This is not a ritualistic prayer. In just a moment when we celebrate communion, we're going to stand and say the prayer together. And I'm hoping a couple of things. Number one is that if there's somebody you have not forgiven, that that's a great time to say, Lord, help me forgive them. And number two is that you just don't read it and tune out, that you read this prayer and realize we just captured a glimpse into a conversation between Jesus and his Father. 
That's priceless. Father, thank you for, again, for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for being a God who is compassionate and gracious. Thank you for being a God who understands and already knows. Thank you for being a God who loves and desires to bless. And thank you, Lord, for being a God who is intimately engaged with each of us here at our church. Help us to continue to work together to become even more that way with our families, our children, our friendships, even with our enemies, Lord. In your son's name, amen. God ask the ushers to come.